We're going. Hey, everyone. I'm Gaston, and Frank is actually not here. Um, he died. Frank, Frank is no longer with us. He's actually in the death of Hotel Internet at BlizzCon right now. So if there's anybody to fault for this, it's clearly Overwatch and Blizzards. Um, but that being said, we're on the bubble, and we're talking about Magic the Gathering, community, and lifestyle. And this week, we have a... We have a guest who's very special to me because we were not roommate. We weren't roommates in college, right, Jules? No, no, no. We were never roommates, but yeah, we were not quite. <laughs> not quite. Uh, we went to UCLA together, and uh, so Jules Robin is our guest, and he's actually now a member full time. Right? It's not even contractor at this point. That's true. He is a full time member of Magic the Gathering R and D. So if you have anywhere that you want to throw your blame at or for your dissatisfaction with Magic, I found the person for you to do it. Uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, Mark a, Rosewater gets plenty of blame, but a lot of people make decisions in R and D. So feel free to blame me for random things. They yeah, might so be it, my fault. It's it's just Jules at this point. No, but <laughs> Jules is a great guy. We went to UCLA together, and um, you know we started playing Magic. We were grinding like the PTQ system together. And Jules, I'm giving you like a little bit of a brief intro. But how about you go ahead right now and you take the time to like introduce yourself exactly like what your history is with magic because i really look to you as someone who who's really defined your career around this this game in, in a great success too yeah uh thanks so uh i'm jules i started playing magic back around odyssey 2001 ish uh was a kid on the playground and you know tapping our lawnmower elves to search out forests and all that good stuff but eventually i really learned how to play and I just fell in love with this game. Uh, I've been playing a ton ever since. Uh, F&M's week to week and eventually trying to play more competitively at PTQs and GPs. Uh, that's where I was when I went to school in L.A., met Gaston. Uh, we did a good amount of testing for events and a lot we more also traveled box. a lot and yeah. if you've ever traveled to the group of magic place and you've ever played the game categories don't play it with jewels because <laughs> it, it will not be fun you will lose <laughs> you will lose really hard <laughs> and, and he will force you to not just oracle text your cards but say the oracle text correct to the t and it's just not exciting for anybody involved <laughs> but <laughs> Well, so but, uh, the way this works, I've been playing <laughs> Magic for a long time, and I play a lot of Commander, means I always have to look through, you know, weird old cards most people don't even recall or know about to find the perfect things for my decks. So I've learned the majority of Magic cards this way, but I'm really bad with names. So And you were play... also a writer, right, for Magic the Gathering Sites? Uh, that's true. I used to write for Quiet Speculation, and then Gathering Magic, and then Goblin Artisans. Uh, yeah, I, I wrote about Commander mostly, and then Magic Design for a while before I actually started here at Wizards doing that. And you were also a judge, am I right with that? Yeah, I was a level one judge for quite a while. And Do you ever uh, judge something of significance? Uh, I, I judged in SCG Open once. All uh, right. That's about all above FNM level I ever judged. Perfect. Is there like one event in particular that you remember from that event? Or, or not really? It's just completely irrelevant at this point. Um, I, I don't have a lot of memories from it, but 
There were definitely some uh, Garrick wild speaker priority questions about getting to activate your planeswalker abilities. It was it was very exciting. I see. I see. Well, now you found your way into R and D, right? And you've been you've been there for a while now, huh? It's been like over a year at least. Yeah, I started uh, last June, I guess. That's crazy. And we were just talking a bit off air, um, and you mentioned to me that when you entered. The set that was in FFL was Eldritch Moon, correct? Yeah, Eldritch Moon was still in FFL when I got here. Um, I'm on the design team, so I work more on the like first part of the process, uh, figuring out what the sets are going to be about, what the mechanics are going to be. So I did some of the FFL testing with Eldritch Moon, but most of the stuff I did when I got in the building hasn't even come out yet. You'll You'll hear more about it later, but exploratory design for sets years down the line and one of the big sets that we're going to be talking about today specifically since the latest set that's come out is kaladesh and jules i want to hear before we dive into it deeply like to what degree were you involved with either the the making of certain cards in kaladesh or just the set as a whole in your experience working there yeah so kaladesh is the first uh, main booster set to come out that I really had uh, a lot of input on. I was on the Future Future League team for Kaladesh. That's where we do our testing for standard. Um, so the set was already in you know pretty good shape. It had gone through design and most of development. Uh, I played in some limited play tests too, but we were working on uh, more fine grained balance for how the set should play out in standard. Uh, so Kaladesh is actually the set with my first published card, Verderous Gear Hulk, uh, which changed Ooh. in our FFL process. So tell me, what does that mean that it was your first published card? Like, or, or did you create everything from concept of Gear Hulk, or did you change the card enough so that it eventually became known as like Jules's card? Yeah. Um, so we have a collaborative process. It's very rare that anyone's actually wholly responsible for a card. So this was, we already had a cycle of Gear Hulks. We started testing with them and didn't like what the green one was doing. So we uh, sent out a ask for new designs for a green gear Hulk. And this is the one I sent in. Is it, am I allowed to ask what the evolution of the card was and your input on it? Um, sure. I, hopefully, maybe we'll have to cut this out later. I'm not we, we can edit sure. anything out. But, so yeah. it's not a, not a concern of there. Yeah. Um, Basically, just the previous version of Verderous Gear Hulk was looking at cards from the top of your library and putting creatures from among them into your hand. Oh, and, yeah, we, we want blue to be the number one choice when it comes to drawing cards. And the card was just uh, doing too good a job of putting you up on cards in hand, and especially in a format that already had a tireless tracker and was just going to be getting over collected company we didn't want to double down on uh green generating that much card advantage and then but in terms of statistics and mana costs like is that something that you also had a game in or is that something that kind of it was more about the ability that needed to change yeah so that's actually kind of a funny story uh these are the numbers i first designed verdus gear hulk with and uh when i brought the when i brought my designs to Ian, the Ian Duke, the set's lead developer, I looked at it and I was like, eh, maybe these are crazy. Maybe it should be a six mana five five that distributes five counters. 
but Ian wanted to give it a try at the, shall we say, more aggressive numbers, and thankfully they seem to have worked out. It was a fun part oh, in cool. FFL, and... Uh, so four 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 five was actually like the original Jules pitch. Yeah. Ah, oh, nice. Was that inspired by Wolfie's Silverheart by any chance? Uh, it, it may have been. <laughs> All right. All right. I see what you did there. Uh, <laughs> so <laughs> what? What are the? Let, let's dive into the, the questions that uh, that we know I can definitely ask you, uh, and so we don't, intr- you know, we don't cross over uncharted <laughs> territory. Right. But uh, so you know, we're talking about Kaladesh. Kaladesh is the set that if you've been playing it, you know, it's artifact centered. Um, and it has a great playable Jeskai deck in standard, so Jules knows that I love that already. Mm-hmm. But my big question to you, and I know you know, I know at PAX when the fir- when the set was first spoiled, there was a lot of conversation about like what Kaladesh is trying to do in terms of lore and, and in terms of story. But I would love to hear your perspective in terms of like how is Kaladesh meant to feel as a set, and what in particular does Kaladesh have that make it differ from previous iterations of magic worlds that we've traveled to? Yeah. Um, so one, one major driving force in uh, developing Kaladesh was we wanted a more optimistic setting for this block. Uh, you know, magic is a game about combat, so we often get into uh, dark and gritty spaces and shadows over Innistrad. Right. Or, uh, you know, Eldrazi ripping your plane to shreds, what have you. Even the nice, sunny, (laughs) war-torn, dystopian time travel story that is Tarkir. Right. Uh, So that that was definitely an aim with Kaladesh. The, you know, dark and gritty is fun and enjoyable, but it's tiring if it's all we ever do. Um, So what, what really drove this plane in this set is uh, this optimistic idea of invention that you can build anything. The sky's the limit. And we really took that to heart, not just in the creative where you have a world full of artificers uh, constantly creating new things, but also in gameplay. Kaladesh is very much designed to have different games play out differently even if you're playing with the same cards. You have energy where you're generating this resource but might funnel it into different things from game to game or fabricate where things will play out very differently depending on whether you're making tokens or one big creature. Uh, And even your vehicles give you a lot of extra options in combat. Really, uh, we talk about player psychographics a lot. These are reasons why people play magic, what basic human needs they're filling with the game. And every set we try to have something for as many players as we can. But Kaladesh is focusing a lot more on the Johnny or Jenny psychographic, which are players who are trying to use magic as a means of self-expression, like people use music or painting. Interesting. Uh, So what do you mean by that? Do you mean like the vehicles as a way to... I'm looking at the vehicle specifically, but you also mentioned, you know, there's there's like the energy mechanic and there's the fabricate. What what do you think about those mechanics in particular, different from other mechanics that we've seen in Magic's past, like fit that niche stronger? Right. So I I guess uh, if you have a mechanic like say Landfall from Zendikar uh-huh. or Battle for Zendikar, 
there are strategic portions to the mechanic. You want to figure out the best turn to get the landfall trigger or whether it's worth giving up mana for better trigger timing later. Like you have strategic decisions, but you're just trying to find uh, the right way to optimize the one thing the mechanic is doing. The mechanics of Kaladesh are a lot more focused on you figuring out what it is you're supposed to do. You get to craft your own game plan with them a lot more. Interesting. So are you suggesting, and this is me interpreting what you're saying in terms of like the, the, the way the mechanics play out, like that to me suggests that at least on a power level, everything's so balanced that now it's about figuring out what your own personal take on how you want to go about playing the game of magic best suits you. Is that kind of what I'm hearing? Yeah. I, I mean, it's impossible to perfectly do that in any perfectly balanced game state sure. situation. Right. But, uh, you know, if you have a three, three creature with fabricate one and your opponent has a three, three, you have a pretty good reason to make it a four, four, not a three, three and a one, one. But a, a lot of this comes up in, deck building uh right. even more so than gameplay like if you have uh creatures with fabricate there are cards in the set that'll reward you for having a lot of creatures on the battlefield there are cards in the set that reward you for having artifacts there are cards in the set that reward you for having plus one plus one counters on your creatures mm -hmm. so this one card gives you a lot of different directions to go as far as what what you're trying to build i see so it's more about opening up the options with the mechanics that we that we're playing with at the same time Right. That's cool. I didn't think about it that way. See, but this is why you're working there and I'm doing my own things. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, we, we kind of touched on this in terms of Matt, of Kaladish just having certain elements that pertain to, to the Johnnies of magic. But, you know, m one of my next questions for you was going to be, effectively the question is, like, what's the audience for Kaladesh? Specifically, when you're designing the set, how much do you find yourself responding to the needs of the lore of like the story that we created for the world versus the future for say, like the competitive scene for maybe standard even. Yeah. So th this is a pretty difficult balance with all of our sets, but uh, re really the hope is that we can serve both goals at once. Mm -hmm. Right. So all of our legendary characters and planeswalkers, these cards, we, have to try to match to this existing character with their own personality and powers in the story and things like that. And there's back and forth between the, you know, card designers and the people writing the story. We try to help each other match things up. Um, but, for instance, you have Sahili Rai. Uh, you know, her, her power set is... She's an artificer, and she's uh, excellent at devising how something should work. She can come up with a concept or see something that exists, and she'll just know how to craft it and be able to, you know, create her materials for that. So we, you know, got to her minus two ability that can create a copy of something sort of via that flavor, but... Once we had that, we spent a lot of time working on Sahili's interactions with, say, the Gear Hulks, where you have big creatures with powerful enters the battlefield abilities that synergize really well. Mm -hmm. uh, so th there's a lot of back and forth on that front, like what can change from a creative standpoint and what can't. 
have there been instances where like a card's design has influenced the story? Um, certainly. I'm trying to think of an actual example for you. Um, yeah, I'm sorry. I don't have a good one off the top yeah, of my it's head. It's all good. I mean, it's, no, no need. But yeah, that's cool because I actually haven't thought about that until this conversation, which is the concept mm-hmm. that, you know, the lore and the gameplay should be working together as opposed to one dictating the other one, which is kind of what I'm hearing from you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this, so, this is... In terms of production, like which one, which one comes first? Like, do you guys write the lore and then design the cards, or is it literally just an evolving process? Yeah, so we have a lot of back and forth. Very early in the process, we start with uh, a team exploring really broad pictures what this set could possibly be about. This is getting the top line. Like, this set is going to be about being an inventor. And then we have a world building team that'll kick off like what might that mean for this plane based on this very broad high level idea. And from Mm -hmm. there, there will be a design trying to come up with mechanics and themes that might fit this world. And then the world will gain new aspects to layer on other pieces of the mechanics. And we just go back and forth building on each other's work and amending things as we need to. Okay, I get that. I, I I'm see. I, I'm learning now. I feel like after this conversation, me and everybody who's listening will be qualified to work for R and D. Uh, <laughs> uh, job board, a, job boards are always open. <laughs> yeah, you're gonna get a, a resurgence of applications all of a sudden. <laughs> but so move, moving towards more of a gameplay oriented uh, mindset now, because uh, I know the majority of our player or of our of our player base, I almost said, of our listener base, is more interested in the competitive scene. Uh, because you know that's what Frank and I advocate most of the time. Mm-hmm. But <clears throat> what you know, we—I don't know if you heard this episode actually, um, and you should if you haven't, because I think you would actually really like this. But we brought mm-hmm. on Tom Lapelli um, as a previous as a previous guest for the show. For those of right, you out right. there who heard the show or who may not or who may not have, to recap, Tom Lapelli is an old um, ex Wizards of the Coast R and D designer, and he was the head designer for. A lot of really cool magic sets, uh, namely, off the top of my head, I can think of the fact that he worked on M12, and uh, I know he did Dragons of Tarkir and Jewels, if I messed any of that up, please correct me, but he, I, th- I think I'm right, like, I think yeah, I'm right I think on what right. I just said. Okay, perfect. <laughs> um, and, and he actually, one of the things that he talked about in terms of gameplay, which was a big emphasis on our conversation with him, was this notion of speed, right, and the question of how fast do we envision uh, a format playing out in a competitive environment? And to that degree, you know, we were referring to standard and modern, which I assume must be specifically standard must be a big priority in you guys' mind when you're designing a set. Right. And like, for, for example, just to give you guys an idea of what I mean by speed, like he was talking about, okay, if we're going to have, goblin guide in the format right for example we need to make sure that we have we need to have counterplay to that or removal that's cheap enough to be able to deal with that so all of a sudden now we're introducing lightning bolts and and things like maybe even path to exiles into a format i don't even know if those were in the the same standard environment but i'm just trying to create create a cheap (laughs) interaction examples right here uh so you know and, and he was talking about how the fact that 
when he was designing dragons of Tarkir, he really wanted cards like Dragon Lord Salumgar and Oju Titus play, which meant that the removal that was available needed to slow down. So instead of becoming like two mana Doom Blades, we started seeing like Heroes Downfalls and you know the the likes of, of of a slower removal spell to allow for these bigger creatures to kind of enter the scene. Mm-hmm. Um, so to that degree, my question to you was. Is that something that you guys still work with, the question of speed? And if so, what do you envision the speed of Kaladesh to be? Yeah, it's definitely something we're very cognizant of. More and more we've been trying to uh, push things so that there are decks along a wide range of speeds in the metagame. Uh, You'll see this, for example, with vehicles in Kaladesh, the there are a lot of powerful ones that slit, slot into uh, very aggressive decks, and they give you a lot of insurance against classic control board sweepers. So those decks are very fast in a lot of their matchups, but when you're playing against a deck with a lot of answers, the vehicles actually give you an opportunity to sort of get your foot in the door on keeping pressure on your opponent, even as you go through a slow grindy game where a lot of things are traded one for one. You don't just end up with a dynamic that sometimes occurs where uh, if the control deck can stop the initial aggro push, that's just the end of the game. And that's really what we're after, is games that remain interactive with both players having a real shot at winning uh, throughout the game, even if they're on game plans at opposite ends of the speed spectrum. Interesting. But obviously, I envisioned that. Because so, so, Tom was talking about that too. And, you know, the mm-hmm. way he mentioned it is like he saw almost a failure in like the Sphinx Revelation era where one player would definitely have won the game, but he couldn't actually claim victory until turn t- like 10 turns after he won said game, right? Yeah. the opponent had to just like watch him draw cards into like his opponent's 10 cards in hand or whatever. Um, so are you suggesting then that, you know, the more interaction is obviously the better, but that a game, I don't know, like to me, I'm hearing that a game shouldn't end. Like if a game should end, a game should end, right? Like is, mm-hmm. is that kind of what I'm hearing from you? Right, definitely. We don't We don't want our control deck just answering everything and then sitting there and having threats like uh, creature lands in the format that will continue to apply pressure even through the normal answers a control deck has forces them to do things like uh, attack with their gear hulks and really get a proactive game plan once they've pulled ahead, not just let games languish with nobody really getting a fun gameplay experience. I see. And then, so then the question of speed then, how aggressive is that in determining that in the development process? Like, is it, a, is it as extreme as saying, we want this to be a turn six format? Or is it more of a, I don't know, like, is it more of a, like, this is the fastic, this is, like, how can we answer the fastic without it being too strong of an answer? Like, what, what, what's kind of the conversation that goes on there? Yeah, more towards the latter. We definitely have bounds on, like, we don't want any deck winning way too quickly or taking a really long time to win but we we don't aim for a specific turn where games are being decided we want some ebb and flow between matchups to you know keep the decks feeling unique not just well this is the big six mana spell that i happen to kill you with when we've reached that point in the game 
I see. So then how do you, how do you think that ties specifically to Kaladesh then? You know, you're talking about gear hooks and, and this question of productivity and vehicles is kind of like giving you more options from the aggro players. So is it more about making sure that like the aggro decks don't just fall into the, the trap of, oh crap, I have nothing else to do with the game. And then the control decks don't fall into the trap of like, I'm kind of just like dirtling over here and pretending you don't exist and kind of finding a happy medium where everybody has to constantly remember that there's an opponent on the other side of the table. Yeah, de- definitely. The major thing is making sure that uh, you don't run into points in the game where one deck has really completely invalidated the other and the game has to keep going on. I see. All right. I, I, can, I can buy that. How do you how do you see mid-range decks fitting into that paradigm? Or the question of, uh, of like a mid-range, you know, like kind of we're seeing like the green-black delirium deck play out. I feel like mm-hmm. if anything, it, now that I'm thinking about it, it best characterizes what you're describing, huh? Something that can interact at every end of the spectrum. Right. Yeah, I, I would say mid-range is kind of the poster child for this. Usually when playing a mid-range deck, depending on the matchup, you're either going to be taking the more aggressive role or the more controlling role. Uh, but since you have the tools to do both, it's uh, hard hard to ever just be at a loss for things to do to keep an interesting magic game running. This is, every time we talk about these things, I just get like so many questions in my head. It's really exciting to me because like I don't see myself as a card designer, but like when these conversations strike, I'm like, huh, but wait, everybody's a critic. Uh, but <laughs> cool. So. Well, I don't want I don't want to dwell too much on that because I feel like I could pick your brain on the notion of uh, of roles and, and speed and, and how to you know create that even flow for forever. Uh, but you know we have to cover other grounds before I have to you know we can't we can't talk forever. People won't listen to that. But you know I know Frank in particular really said that he can't join us due to technical difficulties. But he's actually a huge fan of Kaladesh as a limited format. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I know if he were here today, he would be like, Jules, this is, this is my interpretation of Frank, right? He'd be like, Jules, I love Kaladish Draft. And that would be the end of his sentence. Um, but, <laughs> but he actually, one of the things that he was talking to me about is that he felt that there was a quote-unquote correct balance in the power level of the removal available in the format. I don't really know what he means to that degree to be honest with you um mm-hmm. i can't elaborate more than that but i know he was really excited about the fact that i think in previous sets he might have felt that the rule might have been too strong or the opposite would be that the rule would have been too conditional but mm-hmm. he felt that there was a fine balance between like certain removal spells at different costs do what he needs them to do at different times and then his question which i'm asking on his behalf is is that from a design perspective, like what goes into evaluating how cheap or powerful removal spells need to be? Yeah. So uh, there are a fair number of considerations on where removal spells are supposed to land. Uh, they, you know, serve a lot of different roles. The cheap removal spells will be used by slower decks sometimes to stop an early aggressive push from their opponent. We don't want a lot of games where one player's just getting run over by someone curving out, you know, turns two, three, and four and dying because uh, you, don't, you don't get a satisfying interactive game out of that. Um, but likewise, when you try to stop that from happening with, say, effective blockers that stall the ground, then 
you can lead to board stalls and stalemates. So removal spells will often be what get you through those. Uh, Magic also wants a lot of, you know, exciting bomby creatures that give you deck building direction in draft, uh, give you an exciting moment in the game and drive things toward a conclusion. But it's not fun if the game just comes down to I draw my angel and kill you with it. You need some way to deal with those cards, but if you get removal that's too efficient at dealing with them, you know, your doom blade to a seven mana archangel or what have you, mm-hmm. uh, then it just feels bad to play with those big powerful cards. You just lose a lot of mana on the exchange. So there, there are all these competing knobs where we uh, want to make sure players have answers for everything. So uh, the games are full of interaction, but we don't want the removal to be powerful enough that it makes it irrelevant what creatures people are playing. Uh, we, we want it to be, you know, a careful doling out of removal. It's about using your removal spells in the right places and lining the right removal spell up against the right threat. And in terms of development, like, what kind of starts that discussion of, like, balance? Because, you know, it sounds like, that you know, a lot of what you're describing to me comes down to these are the things that exist, these are the answers that exist, like, let's get to a healthy balance where, like, neither one is oppressive. But where, where do you start? Like, do you start with the threats and then start crafting removal spells around that in development? Or, or do you start with the removal and then decide, like, we want a searing spear to be in this set therefore like creatures need to have about four toughness if they want to be better or like kind of what's that conversation like yeah there's definitely some give and take on that front so when we have removal spells that are going to be relevant for standard those need to be balanced against you know the creatures already in that standard environment from previous sets but if it's you know, what have you, your lightning strike at common, that's going to have a big impact on the limited format. So that can have ripple effects out there. Um, and sorry, so just to go go exactly with what you just said, like where does the decision to make lightning strike at common come in? Like is that after we printed all the set and said, crap, like we made a set that's really strong in terms of creatures, like we need this to like help us answer that or is it like or who where does that decision come into play yeah um a lot of it'll be looking at what we have in the previous standard environment and trying to offer different options so that there will constantly be new things to explore if you have a lot of you know really strong efficient three toughness creatures in a standard environment and a lot of burn spells that deal two damage or, you know, murders that can kill anything but aren't that effective against your two or three mana card with three toughness, that gives an excellent opportunity for a card like Lightning Strike to come in and change what threats are good in the format and allow people more room to explore what to do. All right. So it's about opening up the opportunities then. And I noticed, and this is my observation, and I know when I was talking to Tom LaPelli, he he agreed with me and I, I would love to hear your opinions on this because now you know we're on the subject of removal now mm-hmm. and a trend that i'm detecting in you know i call them the modern standard sets <laughs> but because modern's actually a format sometimes people get confused but what i mean is just like the standard sets that come out recently right so mm-hmm. i'm talking 
I'm talking Kaladesh. I'm talking Eldrazi. Uh, I'm talking Innistrad, right? Like, I noticed that the removal stopped being as kind of general as it used to be, right? Like, we're not seeing our mana leagues and our terminates anymore. And instead, we're seeing more removal that's that's tend to be more conditional. Mm-hmm. And it really rewards you for kind of picking the right ones each week in a tournament environment. Is that Would you agree with that observation that that is kind of a, 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 an active stride that is being sought after from a development perspective? Yeah, I, I think it adds a lot of good things to environments when your removal spells line up better against some threats than other ones. It just, uh, you know, g- gives you incentive to try new things and keep the environment fresh. And uh, on top of that, it allows us to print some more exciting cards. If uh, the removal has weaknesses, it can be stronger against the things it's good against. And how does that come into play from a design perspective? It's like if you're saying, I don't want, you know, if we're saying, for example, I don't want Terminate to be a card, right? Because Mm -hmm. it's, it's too aggressive in terms of being too efficient at what we needed to do. So let's slow it down to murder, or let's slow it down to like stuff like Hardness Lightning or Immolating Glare, mm-hmm. for example, or even Grasp of Darkness, which is a great example, I think. Like, what what does that trade-off then mean for the threats in the format? Like, are you, is this that then inherently lower the power level, or does that then just mean that you need to have more, a more diverse suit so that we're kind of playing a game of like we all need to constantly be on each other's toes and, and updating our lists from week to week. Yeah, there's certainly some of the latter. Uh, creatures certainly can't be as powerful in an environment with murder as in an environment with terminate. But for most of Magic's history, I think our creatures have just been a little bit uh, too weak compared to our spells. And n- nowadays, I think we've struck a better balance. So. Uh, yeah, if we had terminated in an environment, maybe we could make creatures even stronger than the ones we have now. But I, I think we're in a better spot as we are. I would agree with that in terms of the the power discrepancy that you know it, it exists between the, the spells and the creatures. Although I gotta say, Seedrino is a really powerful card, Jules. I know he had nothing to do with it, but as as a player that likes to play a lot of reactive cards, holy mo! Did I tell you that I landed my best constructive finish at a Grand Prix playing Seedrino in my deck? <laughs> I, I'm uh, sorry to have stolen went, away all your. I went exit three in Houston, dying like two rounds before. Uh, for, being life or top and being like no and you know why i lost the game that made me go to x and three because i didn't draw a single seed right on that entire man <laughs> it betrayed me it really betrayed me uh, <laughs> but yeah, that, i mean this, I, I think this is a really important conversation and it sounds like something that would definitely dictate a lot of the of the decision making in terms of not only just what cards can we print but also like how strong and how relevant are the spells that we're printing um and and I think vehicles do a really good job at at, at kind of demonstrating what you know the the perfect example of like certain removals only going to be good it, this week if vehicles are good but like you know then you got to switch it if vehicles aren't right like I'm thinking like Runus Path for example can't effectively answer something like a copter mm-hmm. um, right and that goes into the, this question of like exciting and and changing gameplay that you're alluding to as being something that you know. R&D values a successful vision for magic. 
Yeah, that, that's very much the case. And uh, one more point I want to bring up on the Terminate discussion is like, mm-hmm. you know, if we printed Terminate instead of uh, murder and made all the creatures stronger to compensate, like on some level you just get a lot more magic games with uh, without a lot of back and forth. Because mm-hmm. if the creatures have a little bit of extra power, they end the game faster. And the game where you don't draw your removal spell, you're just on the back foot and die immediately. And it also pushes out a lot of the cards that can be playable, right? Like something like Jason Raveler's Secrets, which I think is a, a great card in the current format, mm-hmm. you know, probably wouldn't be as effective in a format where creatures are stronger to compensate for Terminate, right? Right. And you certainly see this in modern. Uh, there are very few threats that can actually make it at higher mana costs. It's just hard to contend with having your four or five mana card answered with a one mana path to exile. Oh, it is. I've tried so many, so many six mana cards in modern jewels that it breaks my heart. Did you know that in the latest iteration of Ad Nauseam, um, well, I was playing Krovax as a way to beat the Infect decks? It can't was really this. spicy. No, you can't. And I was, I also had a Teferi in that list and a Mystical Teachings in the sideboard. So you could tutor for Crobax if the game for some <laughs> godforsaken reason got to that point. But <laughs> but uh, it was good. Yes, it was good. I, you're my hero. Yes, thank you. <laughs> I only play Magic to make you happy, Jules. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, you know, the next version that we had, we kind of already talked about at the beginning when you were talking to me about why Kaladesh is, or, you know, what makes Kaladesh unique and different. But I know Frank specifically really wanted to drive home the question of color combinations. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we've seen color combinations. At this point, I would, I would, I'm only going to make a statement and then you're going to tell me if you agree or disagree. But, like, I feel like at this point in Magic's history, like, we kind of have an expectation for what a color combination should do, right? Like, mm-hmm. especially with a set like Ravnica that's come out and, and really driving, you know, the notion of, like, Asaurus, Golgari, is it, whatever. Like, there's kind of a, a, an element of, okay, if you're matching blue and red, like, we're probably going to be playing spells and, like, burn is going to be involved and looting is going to be involved, right? Like, would you agree mm-hmm. with that, that there's kind of an expectation already to color combinations? Certainly, yeah, and th- there's a careful balance. We want new things for everyone to experience. We don't just want the blue-red deck to play out the same way in every environment, but mm-hmm. when people like that gameplay, we don't want to make it unavailable to them. So we, we try to find new things for some combinations to do in every set, and some are closer to their you know old standby strategies. Um, and how do you and, how do you decide which color combination gets mechanics from that from that perspective? Yeah, so a lot of this will come from earlier in design when we're first putting mechanics into the set. Uh, we'll look at from a color pie perspective where these belong. Uh, you know, if you have a mechanic that's making a bunch of creature tokens it's much more at home in white than it is in blue, just that's much more core to white's identity. So, for example, in Kaladesh, uh, Fabricate is on white, green, black cards and an artifact, uh, but not on any blue or red cards, just because building up your creatures or building a large board of creatures are just less central to those colors. And as you define where some of the mechanics fall, that influences where ones that are more flexible want to go. 
you want different colors in the environment to be doing different things to make more different decks for people to play. And how about new mechanics? Like, how about energy usage? Like, what kind of, in terms of color combination, like, what kind of decided which colors were going to be more aggressively wanting to do an energy theme versus others? Right. So that's something that I think falls out of where our other mechanics are pushed, right? Once we know that we don't want to do fabricate as much in blue or red, that makes us a lot more uh, interested in exploring what energy could be doing in those colors. I see. Um, Usually we try to make sure that all 10 of the color pairs in the set have uh, something to build around. And you often see this in the multicolored uncommons that point you towards the theme. So... Uh, you'll, you'll see in Kaladesh, you have your Whirler Virtuoso and Voltaic Brawler and uh, Imperial Voyager as the gold cards all in the Teamer Wedge. All of mm-hmm. them deal with energy, but in different ways. We try to push the archetypes in different directions where your red-green energy deck will be very aggressive. Your blue-green energy deck will be trying to build up a big store and use it on larger effects, and your blue-red deck is going to be more uh, figuring out where to spend your energy on various, like, I'll use this ability once and this ability twice and that kind of thing. Interesting. I like. I, I never thought about it that way. So, it, it you know, the way you described it made it sound that when you have a mechanic that's so new in this term energy, something we've never seen before in Magic, you not only do you need to decide like how does this mechanic as a whole like fit the existing color combination that we have, but first you need to decide what the heck this mechanic is doing, right? <laughs> right. So that, then you need to pair it to like a color combination in the beginning, because it's true. Like there's no reason for why you know fabricate energy could have been different. I'm assuming right in development, and you could have mm-hmm. said you know actually one energy typically converts to one token, right? I'm assuming. Right. We, we could certainly have just made an entirely different energy economy, and we got where we did because uh, we were trying to maximize the amount of interesting decision-making you could have about where to spend your energy. If you were just gaining, you know, 15 energy and had to spend 10 to make a thopter, then uh, right. you end up with a bunch of wasted energy you're never able to make use of unless... You oh. <laughs> happen to draw the exact right combination of cards, but if I it's never all, thought about that. Yeah. The conversation of like, what is one energy truly worth? Right? right. Like, <laughs> it's almost like a dollar. It's like, what can one energy buy me? <laughs> <laughs> that's a, that's an interesting talk. So, what what about it, it, going back to the question of lore, which we talked about at the beginning of this episode, in terms of mechanics. Where does that come in? Like, how is there a relationship between what the story is doing and like kind of the mechanics that we want to involve into the the the, the scene? Yeah, definitely. It, it varies somewhat from set to set how big an influence that is. But uh, for instance, the entire investigate mechanic in Shadows Over Innistrad uh, actually came from the story first. We were trying to find a way to capture, you know, Jace's, uh, I I guess, detective work on Innistrad, trying to figure out what was going on and give the player a sense of trying to uncover all of that as well. Uh, Or in What about energy in this set? 
energy came from a much more mechanical space. This is a mechanic Mark Rosewater actually designed all the way back in original Mirrodin, but really? didn't find a place to use until now. Yeah. Oh, interesting. So this is something that's been on the... So there could be right now, and you don't need to say yes or no. I'm just speculating mm-hmm. for a listener. There could be 50 mechanics on the back burner that just are dying to find a home right now. Interest future site. Hello, everybody. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so certainly all the time when we're working on sets, people will come up with interesting mechanics. And a lot of the time, for one reason or another, we don't want to use it uh, in that set. Maybe it interacts poorly with some other mechanic we want to use or causes problems in standard with a mechanic from a nearby set or just doesn't have hit quite the right flavor note, but we like the gameplay and we'll try to find places those fit later on. That's so funny to me of, th- of thinking of the, such a thing as like a surplus of mechanics, because to me, like whenever I talk about card design for magic, it's like, it's so hard for me as a person to try to formulate what the heck a mechanic could be. I'm like mechanic, uh, uh, draw a card. Every time you draw a card, uh, you draw another card. <laughs> it's like, what is this mechanic guess on? Uh, it's, a, it's a mechanic. <laughs> it's called draw a card mechanic. I don't know. But <laughs> that, that, that's, I mean, that, that's cool. That's cool to think about the fact that it obviously – Obviously, I know that there's a lot of thought that goes behind the scene, but it's really cool to hear about the inside, kind of the inner workings of what's what's really going on there. Uh, awesome. So, you know, the last question that we had for you uh, per our sheet, again, we kind of jumped the gun and talked about the beginning, uh, was more directed to your own personal experience, given that Kaladesh was one of the earlier sets that you truly got. And, you know, you said you got your, like, marquee card or your first fully, de- you know, fully branded as Jules Robbins card in it. Uh, but I want to hear, uh, even on a more personal note, it's like, what was that environment like for you coming in? Because, you know, I, correct me if I'm wrong, but you entered R&D as an intern or contractor at first? Uh, yeah, summer intern first. And then from there, did you move on to the contractor position before full-time? Yeah, that's right. So... I you know I I was playing magic with you up until you left right and I I don't I don't even remember what exactly like was the standard at the time or anything but what was that experience for you from a player going from playing you know PTQs and the likes with me and like traveling in a nearby Grand Prix to all of a sudden like being in the room and seeing the FFL for the first time of like holy moly like this is like I'm unlocking the matrix to a certain degree. Like yeah. what was that experience like for you uh, just as a player and, and really just like as a person? Yeah. Uh, it, it was definitely uh, pretty surreal, both on the, from the standpoint of like, Oh, here are all these people. I, you know, know so much about, I've read their articles. I've learned a lot of what I know about magic from them. And uh, now I'm in the room with them bouncing ideas off and uh, making proposals. But it, even on top of that, just playing the games is an incredible experience. You know, when we're testing for a tournament, uh, the cards are what they are. We're trying to find the best deck. We're trying to figure out how to play them, but they're locked in stone. And uh, in FFL, everything is constantly changing. If we find uh card is a little bit too strong it changes or if a deck isn't fun we'll try to make it weaker or if 
a deck is fun but isn't winning enough, we don't go, oh, well, I guess we won't play that. We try to figure out how to make it a powerful deck so that people can play with it and enjoy it in real-world tournaments. Uh, That's and- crazy. My next question was going to be, what's it like to play with like an uncharted magic territory? You're kind of answering that. This question of, like, there is an unlimited potential to what could happen in these games, literally, because we could change it if something doesn't, like, either go along with the intention of the set or if it's too powerful. That That's really wild. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, there's, you know, things from small stuff if a couple of cards interact in a weird way and we don't think it'll be intuitive and tweak one a little bit, that but they mostly play the same all the way to, you know, playing a deck and going, well, I don't think this card was good enough, but it was the most fun card in my deck. What Mm -hmm. can we do to make it fill a role this deck needs? Um, And and, without going into too many specifics uh, of, of, you know, of like word, word, word examples, on a general note, like, how much would you say you witnessed the set evolve in the FFL, Kaladesh specifically? Yeah, uh, quite a bit. What, one thing we usually do in FFL is try to figure out uh, if there are fun and interesting decks to create around the set's mechanics. We want to let people experience them, not just in limited, but also from a deck-building standpoint in constructed so trying to figure out especially in kaladesh with all these uh kind of uncharted mechanics like what does it look like to have vehicles or cards that use energy that are fun for constructed is a really interesting problem so for instance on energy we didn't want you to just play a deck full of nothing but energy cards because then there's no room for the deck to evolve there's no room for uh, counterplay. It's just if there's something good against the deck, they don't have a way to adapt and vice versa. So we, we spent a lot of time trying to figure out what energy cards we could make that you would want to play in Constructed and would make you want to play some other energy cards so you could use the mechanic the way it's intended where you spend your energy in different ways from game to game. Uh without just getting you to put all of the cards into your deck. So we spent a lot of time messing around with different setups and eventually tried to focus most of the power in energy cards that have uh, a cap on how much energy they can uh, usefully spend rather than having whatever big uh, 8-mana energy activation be the core of what you build the deck around. Right, and I remember to that note, when I was watching the poster coverage, Ian Duke, while on coverage, made a comment about how he, he didn't want there to be, and I say he, but I you know I know he was talking more about the collective R&D as a whole, not just his own personal opinion, but he mentioned that R&D didn't want there to be like a direct way for energy be to convert it into life, right? Because like what you're yeah. describing, that would make it so that it would be too obvious of like, oh, why would I spend energy on this when I can just like spend it on killing you, right? <laughs> exactly. That's interesting. So then it becomes just like, okay, you glimmer. Now do you want to make mana with your Aether Hub or like kill a bigger creature with Lightning Hardness? Mm-hmm. I, and I use these examples because that's what I'm using energy for. <laughs> but <laughs> screw Bristling Hydra and Hexproof, man. That card needs to be deleted from the card file. No, I'm kidding. Uh, <laughs> but that's cool. And then just to finish our discussion of FFL, what would you say is the average like 
timeline or not timeline but like time allotted to to the FFL as a whole or is or is the FFL just something that just happens simultaneously as new cards are being printed or not printed but like designed and conceptualized yeah so we'll we'll have a slotted uh chunk of time for every set to get its FFL testing it'll generally be right at the tail end of when we're testing limited we want to have most of uh most of the limited format settled down so that we you know know where most of the cards want to be and then we can tweak things to get them to the right power level for standard uh hopefully without destroying all of our limited testing right how interesting so limited is kind of the foremost and creating a self-contained world and then seeing how it applies to the bigger scheme of magic well, and limited will inform a lot of our decisions. We may need to shift what colors a mechanic appears in to get limited uh, two-color archetypes working out correctly, and we don't want to have spent a bunch of time testing cards for standard in a color that's no longer going to have the mechanic on those cards. Interesting. Cool. Well, what was it like, last question, being, like, a player in FFL? Was that just wild the very first time you played it? Were you just like, whoo <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it definitely was. There's a very different Did dynamic. you ever deliberately print a card so you could play it and be broken in FFL? <laughs> <laughs> no. The, as, as soon as something's broken, uh, it gets changed pretty quickly. So Were you don't you get like, to... Were you like, I am sick of losing to Ian in the FFL. I'm going to print this card <laughs> to beat him, and then he'll veto it, but I will have beat him in this one game. <laughs> uh, no, I, 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 did, I, I didn't do that, but there were uh, pl- plenty of cards that were broken off the bat that we had to change, so I, I got my fill of playing broken decks early in the FFL. Okay, yeah. so you got you got your share of playing with busted stuff. Yeah. Man, okay, I, and and you're still sandbagging my idea, right? Of like printing a really, I I, I got you, I got you on the back burner, Jules. <laughs> no, your secret's safe with me and everybody that's listening to this podcast. Um, <laughs> cool. Well, I know we've been talking for a while, and I know you need to go to go, you know, create awesome magic cards slash like have a fun life in Seattle without me in lonely LA. Uh, but before I do, I wanted to give you the chance, if there was something in particular that, you know, we didn't get to cover in our questions or something that you wanted to offer, uh, to our listeners out there, either about Kaladish in particular or your general outlook of magic, or if Jules Robin had a mission statement and, or if you were getting engaged, this would be a great time to make that announcement. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I'm, I'm sorry to disappoint on that front, but, uh, it. Yeah, I, I guess one thing I would say is, uh, you know, for for all the time we spend trying to balance environments and all of that, like the point at the end of the day is to make magic as much fun as it can be. Um, and in R&D, we're all very receptive to feedback. We read articles and, you know, uh, social media posts and everything so if you have feedback about things that are or aren't fun from you for you talk about them we're always trying to get better at making magic everything that the players want out of it awesome and we can tweet at you i'm assuming at uh, hashtag watsy staff 
<laughs> yeah, you, you, can, you can tweet at me uh, at Jules Robbins. That's J-U-L-E-S-R-O-B-I-N-S. Cool. I, and I if you want information, <laughs> and if you want information on what Jules used to be like in college, I got all of the secrets for you. So tweet at me at <laughs> what is my Twitter? Anyway, it's like Gaston underscore Rocobot. Yeah, that's my Twitter. <laughs> if you want to tweet at me for Jules questions, uh, but anyway, cool. I mean, other than that, I obviously I could talk to you about this forever, but you know, our listeners have a life that they need to live, and you have a life they need to live, and I kind of do as well. Um, so <laughs> thank you so much Jules, for coming on the show. I loved hearing your, uh, your insight on Kaladesh and, uh, and card creation. Are you going to be at any Grand Prix visiting for any, for any reason? Um, I know I you can't play in them, yeah. but I, I don't have anything on the schedule yet, but I'll definitely be planning to, uh, get to some in the area as they come up. All right, well, I'm definitely going to be at Denver, so hint, hint, nudge, nudge. You should <laughs> All be right. At Denver. Uh, <laughs> if nothing else, then to watch me make a fool out of myself or whatever crazy deck I end up playing. Yeah, I look but, forward to it. I'll watch yeah, on stream as you top eight anyhow. No, dude, every time I play on stream, I lose. Like, I, I literally think I have a – no, I don't even literally think. Like, I definitely literally know – that I have a 0% win rate on camera. <laughs> it's, just, it's, it's awful. Like, I get on camera and I'm like, oh, God, I forget how to play Magic all of a sudden. Last time I played on camera was in Oakland against Gabby Sparks. I was, like, 3-0 and with, like, no buys or something because I hadn't played Magic in a while. Right. All of a sudden, I'm against Gabby and I, like, forget that she Gideon, that she has a Gideon Emblem in play. When it's, like, being represented right there, I'm, like, making an attack and I'm just like, oh, my God, this attack is so perfect. How did she expose herself <laughs> like this? <laughs> And then she's like, uh, damage? <laughs> and I'm like, oh. Oh, that was bad. <laughs> but anyway, so if you want to watch my loose-ass plays or potentially see Jules, come to Denver with us. Free advertisement over here for Watsy is what I'm all about. <laughs> but anyway, thank you out there all so much for listening. Jules, thank you so much for uh, coming on the show. Yeah. I'm so, so sorry, for Frank. Thank you so much for having me. Yes, uh, anytime you're welcome. It's a blast to be here. <laughs> And I know, Frank, rest in peace. I don't know where you are, but hopefully you're enjoying this episode as much as it was recording. Almost said without you, but that is such a rude thing to say. <laughs> but He'll never know. There. Feel free to follow us on Twitter. Hit us up on SoundCloud. And look out for our Shot Callers League of Legends podcast, which is coming to you live soon via Push to Talk TV that's going to be producing us. So that's exciting in our future. Jules, again, thank you so much. I am thank Gaston. You. Frank is absent. And we're on the bubble.